0: So, uh, really quickly, keep in mind we're going from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is always an important highlight, but we need to keep in mind the context. And there's a lot of things that prepare us for the Sermon on the Mount in this section tonight. So three big movements in our text tonight. The first is Jesus' baptism, and then Jesus' temptation, and then the beginning of his ministry. So let's start with Jesus' baptism. I want to read parts of it. Actually, I want to read it again, so just bear with me as I read it again. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So Jesus is going to get baptized, and keep in mind, this baptism is a baptism for sinners. Can everybody understand John's problem? It's like there's a big banner that says, all sinners come here, you can repent. And Jesus shows up. And John knows who Jesus is. And he knows some things about him. He says, hold on, this is wrong. Why are you doing this? I I need you to baptize me. The, The Gospel of Matthew is the only gospel that records this. And Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. In whom I am well pleased with whom I am well pleased there's so much going on here and we're gonna to have to skirt over the top of much of it why did Jesus get baptized by John why so he says to fulfill all righteousness let me give you a paraphrase I really want to do what my father wants me to do and he wants me to do this that's a great paraphrase for what's going on here Jesus is saying my delight is to do my father's will and he wants me to get baptized that's one reason the second reason and this is why the father wanted him to get baptized, is Jesus fully identified with us. We need to repent. We need forgiveness. We need the repentance. The people, people need the repentance that John is offering. We're sinful people. Jesus assumed our nature, and then he gets right down in the water with us. The water that's for sinners. Does that make sense? So the point here is that Jesus comes close and identifies fully with us in our condition. So that's why he had to get baptized, because he came to identify with us, to come close to us in our sin, to lead us out of that sin. Then we see the Spirit descend. And this should remind you of Genesis chapter 1, when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of creation. God brought forth creation. God is bringing forth new creation in Jesus. It should remind you of Noah's Ark, when the dove uh, was a messenger of the peace that God was bringing at the end of that judgment. Jesus is a new ark, and he is, those gathered to him are being rescued, and God's favor comes upon them. And then we get the voice, and the voice is crucial. God the Father speaks only twice in the Gospel of Matthew, unless you count Jesus' whole life as speaking, which we should. He speaks here and he speaks at the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says something similar in both places. At the Transfiguration, he just adds, "Listen to him." So, John, or excuse me, God says three things about Jesus. But I would sum them all up by saying, "This is my son. Isn't he great? Look, this is my son. I delight in him. He, pay attention to him. Listen to him." And it's important to note. You know, Jesus will later ask, what do people say about me? And people say, well, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And he says, what do you say about me? And we know Peter's response. But whose opinion should we listen to about Jesus? Well, the most authoritative about, opinion about Jesus is the Father. And his opinion is, this is my son. Listen to him. Only God can make God known. And God the Father is making his son known and saying, I delight in him. You delight in him. Listen to him. And imagine, somebody pointed out, imagine if you knew Mary and had made fun of her. You know, about, oh yeah, virgin birth, right? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And imagine you were there then and heard that voice. How would you think? How would you feel? Ooh, (laughs) maybe she was right. I, I was wrong. So he says, this is my son, my beloved son. He delights in him. This should also, by the way, remind you. Does this remind you of anything else from the Old Testament? This is my beloved son. When God asked Abraham to offer up his son, he said, go take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Right? Because Isaac understood or or Abraham understood that love. So he loves him. And then he says he's well-pleasing to him. So there's this delight in God that he has in the son, has always had in the son. But it's more than that. It's that his whole life pleases him. The father looks at the whole way that Jesus has lived up to this point, and he knows the way he's going to live it, and he's delighted in him. He he is well-pleased with what he's done. You should hear sort of a well-done, good, and faithful son of mine. So I love this passage because it confounds people who don't believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, there's there's some heretical groups that have said things like, well, no, God is one, and what happens is he appears in different guises. So sometimes he's the son, sometimes he's the spirit, sometimes He's the Father. Well, what about this passage? What is he, Jesus, doing ventriloquism with the voice from heaven? And then, what is the what is the the Spirit? I love this passage because in this passage we see God the Father. We hear God the Father speaking. We see the Son there coming up out of the water, and we see the Spirit. We see all the members of the Godhead, and I think we get a picture here, a little snippet, a little glimpse of what was going on before creation, the Father delighting in the Son, the Son doing the Father's will, the Spirit uniting them in love. We get a glimpse of that delight, and we're invited into that delight. But the important thing, another important thing to understand about Jesus' baptism is for believers, Jesus' baptism is our baptism. The things that are true of Jesus in his baptism are true of those of us who have put our faith in him and been united to him in faith and baptism. That means we're sons. This is my son. We're sons. Ladies, you're a son too. And I like saying, ladies, you're sons. Because I know that you can modulate and say I'm a daughter and we can say that. But to say you're the son reminds you that you're a son because of the son that makes sense? And after all, men are the bride of Christ. So we have female sons and male brides. And I'm not doing the transgender thing. That's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) We're beloved because we're in him. And this is hard. Some people, half people, a lot of people, the hard thing for them to get is, I I trust in Jesus. I've been united to him. You know what? You are treasured by God because of Jesus. And that, that identity, treasured, Delighted in by God the Father should sink down into the depths of your heart and your life. That's one truth. But the other truth is well-pleasing. All right. Somebody pointed out, what if God went around with us all the time and said, this is Virginia in whom I'm well-pleased. But today, eh. Okay, that would be shame, shaming, embarrassing. Fortunately, God doesn't do that. But here's the truth. Jesus is well-pleasing, and do you know what it means that we're united to him? It means that we can be well-pleasing. That God's plan for us, united to Christ, is to make us more and more like his son. And that God's goal for us in Christ and with his help is that we would be more and more pleasing to him. God doesn't pretend that we're there all the time if we're not there. But we're united to Jesus, and he is always at work because of that connection to make us more like him. C.S. Lewis, again, I always have to quote him. The promise of glory. Sorry, the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible because of the work of Christ or because we're united to Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive the examination, shall find approval, shall please God. Let your heart resonate with this to please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. That our lives in Christ can be pleasing to God and by his help are becoming more and more pleasing. So we get, we're sons. We get uh, we're beloved in him. We get that we are going to become more and more pleasing to him. And lastly and not leastly, we have the Holy Spirit because of our connection to him. Jesus received the Holy Spirit. Christian baptism is Holy Spirit baptism, is receiving of the energetic, helpful presence of God that does that very thing of leading us into a life that is more and more well-pleasing to him. Isn't that good news? Now, Jesus' whole life is one of descent to serve others. And in his baptism, he descends to the place of sinners. And guess what happens? The father lifts him up. The father says, ah, it's my boy. Jesus lowers himself in service and love, and the father lifts him up. Next, we come to Jesus' temptation. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice what it says. What does the spirit immediately do? God affirms, this is my son. I love him. The Spirit rests on Jesus, and then immediately the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose. It's not an accident. For the purpose of being tempted by the devil. And after fasting, and I love this, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I love that. Because after fasting one day, I'm hungry. Uh, it's, it's a funny understatement. All right, so the Spirit leads him. And it's important to note, we, we just were in James. God doesn't tempt us to sin, Right? God can't be tempted. He's not inclined to sin. He doesn't want us to sin. But he allows temptations in our life to mature us. That's how he matured Israel. That's how the scripture says that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. And he does allow difficulties in our lives and temptations in our life to mature us. Not because he's mean enough to get us, but because he wants us to grow up. His love is a love that wants us to mature. And so he allows difficulties in marriage, difficulties with kids, difficulties with lack of marriage, lack of kids, our jobs, whatever. Wanting something and having to wait for it. God allows all those things because he wants to mature us. He wants to, he wants to grow us up and, again, make us more well-pleasing to him. And notice what the devil says. He says, if you are—oh, th- sorry, I didn't get to that part. Let me read it. Um, Verse 3. And the tempter said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first blow that that Satan strikes is against the weak spot. He's hungry. Right? He's feeling the hunger. Big time. And so he says, hey, listen, son of God, you sustain the universe. You can make bread out of stones, what's the big deal? Just use your power, use your privilege, get yourself some bread. But notice what he does. He says, if you are the son of God. Now, 40 days ago, guess what? I mean, 40 days ago, the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What is he striking against? He's striking against the very thing that God said. He's striking against his identity as the son of God. Jesus received the word of the father he received the blessing of the holy spirit at baptism and satan wants to get him to call that into question and to demand a miracle to prove he's the son of god and sometimes i think that's a temptation we want the spectacular to prove that we're the sons of god but what we have is our baptism and our faith in jesus and we're called to trust him and not take matters into our own hands All of the passages that Jesus quotes in these three temptations comes from Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. When is sort of summarizing Israel's time in the wilderness. So Jesus resists the temptation with the word of God. He trusts the Father's word. He trusts the Father's word to him at his baptism. And he does not demand more proof than God has given. He trusts the proof that God has given of his love for him and his identity as the son of God. Verse four, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the temptation here, the first one appealed to a weakness. This appeals to a strength. Jesus loves the word of God. So Satan quotes the scripture to him. And he says, listen, You're here so people believe in you. What better way for people to believe in you than you jump off the temple, angels come and set you down in the middle of the courtyard and everyone goes, it's the Messiah. So the temptation here is do a miracle to prove to other people that you're my son. The first one's about his identity. This is about his ministry, tempting him to use his power to grasp that power and to prove to people who he is. And by the way, isn't that the temptation during all of his ministry? I mean, at any given point, Jesus could have done all kinds of things. And he says to Pilate, I got a whole legion of angels at my disposal. All right. But he refuses to do so because that's not the father's will for him. Don't don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't demand he prove himself to you beyond what he has done. Don't demand he prove himself to others about you beyond what he has said in your baptism and in the message of the gospel. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Have you noticed the theme here? The devil's taken Jesus up, up, up. The father has sent him down to serve, down to die. Satan's trying to get him to take a shortcut. <clears throat> he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, I don't think at this point is much of a temptation, but the temptation is. Jesus is on the mission of Abraham to bless all nations, to be a king over all nations. It's, this is an immediate shortcut. I mean, this is an immediate opportunity to go there. But of course, Jesus knows the word. He knows his father. He, that's no temptation. I want my father's will over any shortcut to the purposes of God. That's idolatry. One act of worship Satan offers him will give him everything he wants, the blessing of all the nations. This is the temptation, I think, to make one's work for God, God. Does that make sense? What I'm doing for God is so important. One little act of idolatry can't be a hindrance to that. It's when we think, it's when we think what we're doing is more important than the way that God has called us to do what he's called us to do. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and, min- and were ministering to him. So Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And it's a very similar temptation. Behold, the fruit was good to look at, pleasing to eat, profitable for making one wise. Jesus has succeeded where Adam has failed. He succeeded where Israel failed. Israel went through the Red Sea and entered the wilderness and were tempted and they sinned. Jesus entered baptism and was immediately sent into the wilderness. And he succeeded where Israel failed. He succeeded in solidarity with us. Remember, not at a distance from us, but saying, God, I'm down here with these sinners. And he's given, I love this, he's given what he refused to use his power to grasp. He's given angels that show up and minister to him. And I believe they probably showed up and gave him food. It reminds me of Elijah on the way to Horeb, remember? An angel shows up and gives him food. And in Jesus overcoming temptation, he shows us how to overcome. But this is really key. It comes. He's not just our example. Okay, I need to learn the word so I can overcome temptation. By all means, learn the word. But the point is, we're in him. We're united to him. He's overcome the tempter for us. So we run. To his identification with us in baptism. We run to that and we cling to that. And we say, Lord, you overcame. I can't overcome on my own. You overcame. And I am in you. Yes, you're my teacher. Yes, you show me how to read the word. But more than anything, my connection to you is what gives me victory. Paul does the very same thing in Romans chapter 6 when he says, guys, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, no. Go back to your baptism. God United you with Jesus. You're dead to sin now. All right? Jesus teaches us the very same thing. And once again, Jesus descends into temptation. And the father lifts him up by sending angels to minister to him because he trusts in him. Finally, the last section. Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. It's a really interesting word, withdrew. Okay, once again, Jesus retreats. All right, he's the king. The rightful place for the king is Jerusalem, but he knows the time is not right. So he retreats like David did. He retreats to Galilee. Remember when David retreated to Philistine territory? Jesus retreats to Philistine territory. Not Philistine, but Gentile. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them light has dawned. Keep in mind, Jesus will be in this territory for the entirety of Matthew up until towards the end when he sets his sights on Jerusalem. This is Gentile territory. There's Jews, but there's Gentiles. It's international territory. There's major highways that went through this area. Um, It's also the area that, we'll get to this later, that Elijah spent a lot of time in. It's the northern kingdom, right? Um, So in a lot of ways, Jesus is, is staying in this area, and it's strategic in a lot of ways. It's a despised region. Most of the people in Jerusalem looked down on those in Galilee. They thought that they were less observant. They thought that they didn't know the scriptures. Uh, They thought that they uh, they were yokels. And Jesus goes and identifies with them. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' message is no different than John's at one level. He continues with the exact same theme, the message of repentance. And remember, the message is not repent so that the kingdom has come. But the kingdom has come. I'm here identifying with you. I come with the promise of the Holy Spirit that will give you a new kind of life and a new resource for living. So repent so that you can be a part of this party. Repent so that you can be a part of the good things that are happening. But notice it's repentance. It's a change of life that is noticeable. It's a embracing of, I want to embrace a life that becomes well-pleasing to God. And that life comes in connection to Jesus. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat with their father and followed him. Now, I want to point out one thing that Jesus says that I think is curious. He doesn't say, follow me and I'll save your soul. What does he do? He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He says, follow me and I'm going to enlist you on what I'm doing. Right? Think back to Abraham. God didn't say, Abraham, come to me and I'm going to get you to heaven. He said, Abraham, follow me and I'm going to use you to do what I'm doing in the world. Join me in what I'm doing in the world. Does that make sense? Now, is Jesus going to save souls? Yes. Yes. But what does he do? He calls them and immediately he says, this is about what I'm doing. This is about mission. I want you to be my apprentices. I am here preaching the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom, and I want you to join me. And you don't have to know a thing. I'll apprentice you. I'll teach you all along the way. Jesus starts a, a homeschool. Okay, what's homeschool about? We, we, a lot of people homeschool because we want to be the people that teach our kids. We want our characters to shape our kids. We want our understandings of the world to shape our kids. Jesus creates a little homeschool. Guys, come live with me. Three and a half years. He doesn't tell them that at this point. Three and a half years. I'm going to teach you all about kingdom life. I'm going to connect you to me and what I'm doing. I'm going to show you my father. It's going to be great. Follow me and I will enroll you in my mission. And this is true of every disciple. We may not be called to leave nets. Like the apostles were. But we are called to reorient our lives around Jesus' school of life. And we are called to let that school be a homeschool. Where it sinks into everything. And our homes and our interactions with one another at home. Amen? 23. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that his fame spread abroad throughout all Syria. And they brought him... All the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus does two things here. He teaches, and he's going to be the teacher all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. Until the end when he says, go into all nations, baptizing them, discipling all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. But through the Gospel of Matthew, it'll just be Jesus' teaching. He's the authoritative teacher. In fact, Jesus, there are five clear sermons in the Gospel of Matthew, if you're paying attention. There's five places where Jesus gives a teaching. And I'll send out an email with all those references, but the first one is coming up. It's the Sermon on the Mount. But he gives these five teachings. So the first thing he does is teaches about the kingdom. Teaches what it means to be a part of the kingdom. How to enter the kingdom. How to interact with the kingdom proclaiming the good news of the kingdom i am coming close god is coming close through me and you can enter into the kingdom by attachment to me you can enter into what god is doing in the earth by attaching to me and then he heals and he casts out demons why does he do that because that's life in the kingdom human sin brings disease it brings sickness it brings broken relationships it brings It brings all kinds of problems. And so what we see Jesus doing is teaching about the kingdom and then restoring people, putting them back together in their thoughts, in their emotions, in their relationships, in their bodies. Human life is being restored back to its original source in God. And so what could happen but them being put back together and healed? Does that make sense? What could happen but that God himself walks the earth then people's lives are put back together. Now, the last thing I want to say before I make a couple of broad points is this. What does all this say about Jesus? When you read the Gospels, one of the things you should do is think, what's Jesus' personality like? And I'm not talking Myers-Briggs. But what's Jesus like? I want to suggest he's joyful. Later on, he says, I'm meek and lowly of heart. I want to help. I want to give you life. When people don't want his help, what does he do? He's not mad at them. He's not offended because they can't believe they didn't listen to me. He's sad that they want to hold on to idols instead of have life. So I think we get this wonderful picture of who Jesus is. Joyful, humble. He wants to help. He will say hard things, but he says hard things because he wants us to have the life that comes on the other side of those sharp rebukes. Amen? So let me share three things to remember. Yay, four to cherish. I have four things. All right? The first thing is this. Jesus came close. So let's stay close to him. Jesus came close in taking on our nature. Jesus came close in identifying with us in baptism. He stayed close by identifying with us all the way into the cross. And he continues to identify with us before the Father. He is is the one in which we have life. The one in whom we have life. He is the Father's word to us. He is well-pleasing to the Father. He is beloved to the Father. And our life consists in staying close to him. Our life consists in staying close to him, in receiving the spirit from him, in receiving the Father's love in him because of him, in embracing the Father's work in our lives to make us more like him, to make us well-pleasing to him. He came close, so we're called to stay close to him. And the thing here is we get the temptation, the very human sinful temptation to say, I'm going to try to do this on my own. I'm going to try to get better on my own. I'm going to try to be beloved. He doesn't find us beloved. He makes us beloved in the Son. Amen? All of this comes by staying close to him. So that's the first thing. He came close to us. Let's stay close to him. The second. He overcame temptation for us. And we overcome in him. Okay, he's not just our example. Sometimes we, we reduce Jesus to our moral example. And he is that, but he is so much more. He overcame in solidarity with us, for us. He is our identity. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Paul's entire identity is his identity in Christ. And that's the Father's word to us. My beloved son in whom I'm well pleased because we're in him. He gives us the spirit which reminds us us of his word so that we know how to resist temptation. By all means read the word, but it's the spirit that brings it to your heart, that brings it to mind, that helps you overcome. So we overcome because he has overcome and because we're connected to his overcoming. John says later in 1 John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that is what has overcome the world. Our trust in him. Three. We're called the lifelong apprenticeship to him. And I love the image of apprenticeship. You need a lot of different images to describe discipleship. But I love apprenticeship because you start out with a master and you don't know a thing. And you just stay with him. And he gives you things to do. And you learn from him and you grow. But it all kind of comes from him. This all culminates in Jesus invitation take my yoke upon you my burden my yoke is easy my burden is light i'm lowly i'm meek of heart i'm a fantastic teacher he does call us to reorient our lives around that apprenticeship he does call us to reorganize things some some he calls to leave everything but he calls us to orient everything in our lives around learning from him how to live we're called to join him in his homeschool joining this eternal, joyous company that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, what does he do? He says, hey, you be my disciples, I'll make you fishers of men. And he goes and shares the good news of the kingdom, and he heals people. He calls us to the same thing. He calls us to loving service to others. He calls us to be a part of helping God put other people back together with his gospel and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus' first Sort of formal teaching. And this is what's great about Jesus' teaching. Is he says. Look here's how, here's how we do it. You stay with me. I'll teach you. I'll send you out to do stuff. And then you'll come back and we'll talk about how that went. And we'll just keep doing that. That's his plan. Next week we'll get into his first big teaching to them. But this is. Here's the final point. We're called to follow him down. Jesus says. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'm not just going to fix you. I'm going to work through you to serve other people. Jesus identified he lowered himself in the incarnation. He lowers himself in baptism. He lowers himself to the cross. And in every, in every time, the Father lifts him up. And the Holy Spirit, if you're following the Holy Spirit, he will lead you in love towards other people. He will lead you to acts of service to other people, to acts of mercy, to acts of blessing, to acts of healing. But you will follow him down because he's blazed the trail down in service and love and the father will lift us up. Down into solidarity. This is, you know, he identified with us in our sin. How can we identify with other people who struggle with sin? How can we have solidarity with them to offer them the forgiveness and the life that Jesus offers? So the Holy Spirit will lead us down in sacrificial service to others, and the Father will lift us up in due time. Amen? Amen. Amen.